Welcome to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. In this episode, Hillel Neuer, the executive director of UN Watch, and Shani Moore, a political theorist and policy consultant, discuss the UN's persistent bias against Israel and examine the latest UN report by the controversial Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese. Let's dive right in. The report of the Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories Occupied Since 1967, that's the long title of the report, has just been released. I'd like to structure our discussion around four broad topics, but we can work in and out of them. First, I want to situate this report in the institutional context of the UN, uh, then talk about the Special Rapporteur, the person herself who uh, fills that job and about the job itself. Then we can discuss the report itself. And finally, we can hopefully, if we have time, connect it to the larger intellectual ecosystem that it emerges from. So let's start by putting this in the framework of the UN. There's a whole salad of acronyms and and institutions that overlap. Maybe you could just explain to us who commissioned this report and where it goes from here. Yeah, so this particular report was was not specifically commissioned by the Human Rights Council, and I'll, I'll say a word about who, who the rapporteur is and how she connects within the uh, larger system. So the Human Rights Council is based in Geneva. It's 47 nations that are members, but every country is present. So I'm Canadian. Canada is present and very active in all kinds of resolutions and debates and taking the floor, but they don't vote. So in the final days of a month-long session, we meet three months a year in September, March, and June. I say we because UN Watch is recognized as an NGO, and in principle, we're supposed to speak as well, although recently, that might be the subject of another podcast, they're not giving us the right to speak, which is quite a, a significant uh, issue. But uh, but normally, NGOs are part of it. And so they meet for three months a year, and the members vote. There are 47 member states, and other countries are present, but they participate in debates, but they don't vote, like Canada uh, or Israel, for example, doesn't vote, but it can participate if it wants to. The, the rapporteur, there are 55 mandates, about 10 or 15 that look at country situations, and about 40 that look at themes, at subjects like torture, like the climate, uh, women's rights, uh, and various other subjects. So there's about 10 to 15 that deal with particular regions or countries, and Francesca Albanese is one of the 15. She's the expert on Palestine, the special rapporteur, and she has an annual mandate to report to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly. She was not asked, sometimes they do ask a rapporteur, which is a UN expert, an investigator, sometimes they will ask the rapporteur to report on something. In this case, she was not asked. She's just asked to give an annual report, and she chose to report on um, incarceration of Palestinians. The, the mandate comes from the Human Rights Council or from the General Assembly? From the Human Rights Council. So, as I mentioned, there are about a dozen country-specific mandates. There's a, a special rapporteur on North Korea, uh, there's one on Sudan, uh, there's one on Haiti, and so forth. And historically, the special rapporteur on Sudan would be asked to look at the human rights situation in Sudan, which might mean for many years there was the regime of al-Bashir, who was accused of genocide against the black people in Darfur. Uh, but the rapporteur would also report not only on the regime, but also the rebels. In many cases, the rebels commit crimes too. And so if you're looking at the human rights situation in a particular region, you get a, a range of uh, issues covered 
uh, full panoply. In, in this case, the mandate is different. It's the only mandate. It's the mandate was created by the old Commission on Human Rights. So it's going back to 1993. It's actually more than 30 years ago. In February 1993, it even predates Oslo. The Oslo Accords are September 1993. So it was a very different situation on the ground. But in February 1993, the Human Rights Commission, as it was called, created this mandate. And it tasked, it created the position of a special rapporteur to investigate Israel's violations. Israel's violations of the bases and principles of international law in the territories occupied since 1967. So only Israel is examined. So the mandate that she calls herself and the official title is Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories, which implies a regional uh, perspective that would look at all sides. In fact, if you open up the text of the mandate, it's to look at Israel's violations. Um, and it's not only Israel's actions, but Israel's actions are presumed to be violations. Were there other mandates that were inherited from Commission to Council? In yes, there, there, there were a number of them. Um, probably the one on North Korea. There were, there were about maybe 10 that were inherited, and there were some that were eliminated. So there was a mandate on Cuba, and that was eliminated. At the time, the Palestinian ambassador uh, told his Cuban friend, he said this in the plenary, we're going to eliminate this biased mandate on Cuba, and then we're going to sing Guantanamera. And that's, he said that in the thing. And, and they did eliminate the mandate. And what's the connection between this mandate and this rapporteur's job and, for example, the ongoing commission of inquiry? Right. So for people who may not know, in, so this mandate was created 30 years ago. And although the other mandates need to be renewed, the mandate lasts usually for a year, sometimes for three years. In the case of a thematic mandate, they have to be renewed regularly. Otherwise, they expire. And in a number of cases, they have expired on certain uh, situations. In this one, it never expires. The mandate is until the end of the occupation. As far as the UN is concerned, Israel's presence at the Kotel, the Western Wall, which is the holiest place where Jews can pray regularly, the Temple Mount is the holiest place in Judaism, but the place where Jews can pray regularly is the Western Wall, that is considered occupied Palestinian Arab territory. So until the occupation means basically forever. Cause because even if uh, you leave a territory completely like Gaza, it's still considered occupation is, 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 is a moral stain. It's not an actual description of a, of a legal military even, condition. Is even it? if Israel were to leave the Kotel and were to leave the, the Western Wall and were to withdraw from, from the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem and the holiest sites, as you say, they could still accuse Israel of still perpetrating occupation as they do in Gaza. Yeah, so the mandate lasts forever. And that is distinct in that case. It also, you know, the commission transformed into the Human Rights Council in the year 2006. And there was a process to review and rationalize and improve the mandates. There was some discussion of each mandate. How should we change it? And some were dropped, like the one on Cuba, for no good reason, just because Cuba was powerful. And the one in Palestine never underwent this review. And it was said it's different. There's always, when it comes to Israel, there's always a difference. And somehow the Arabs said, no, it's not really country specific. It's really a theme. The theme is occupation. So we, somehow they just skipped any review. And so this mandate is forever. And the rapporteur gives a report once a year in Geneva, the Human Rights Council, and once a year at the General Assembly. You asked how it connects to this commission of inquiry. So for people who don't know, two years ago in May 2021, the Human Rights Council uh, met in emergency session. There was a war between Israel and Hamas. Hamas fired three or 4,000 rockets against Israeli civilian population centers. And emergency session created a commission of inquiry. This commission of inquiry was unlike all the others. The others, most famously, the Goldstone Commission from, that presented its report September 2009. 
Goldstone report, that was a commission of inquiry to look at a specific battle or war, and they pr produced their report six months later, some follow-up, then it's gone. It still has consequences, but the commission is gone. This commission of inquiry is to go on forever. It has no end date, and it also is going to look not only in the war of May 2021, but also into whether there's systemic discrimination, um, whether there's racism, whether also looking at root causes, so going back into, you know, uh, could go back 100 years if they want to. So there's really no limits to this commission of inquiry. They picked three members who are very anti-Israel. One is Navi Pillay, who has lobbied to sanction, quote, Israeli apartheid. She also accused Israel of being guilty in the war of May 2021. She's chosen as the head of the inquiry. So that is a, a very significant mechanism at the UN now because it has a staff of about 18 people, including a number of lawyers, and it's there to gather evidence to be used in international courts. That's part of the mandate. And they're extremely active, and they present also twice a year, and they can do things throughout the year. They can hold hearings. So they are distinct mechanisms, but I would say the similarities, so there's no direct connection to them. They each do their own thing, but at some point they, they overlap because, you know, if it's a commission of inquiry into a given war... That's a specific focus. You do your work, it's gone. Because their mandate is general, so too is the special rapporteur. Her mandate is also general. Uh, her mandate is also never-ending. So you really now have, although there's no direct connection to them, they're created by separate entities, you have two permanent mandates on basically focusing on Israeli actions, violations against Palestinians. They both have no, no term limit. Uh, they both chose people who are extremely biased. And they're, I think another thing that, I, if I could add, that unites them is they're both not just focused on Israeli actions, but on some kind of inherent sin of, of Israel. I mean, the, the mandate for the COI is about the, the root causes or the systematic causes. Um, what both of these reports have in common is that they're not even, you know, in the Goldstone sense, uh, looking, however biased, um, at a set of actions that presumably could be repaired or compensated or at least prevented from happening again, but at an, an essential sin. I wonder if that exists for any other kind of mandate. So there's no formal connection. These are both two just open-ended, ongoing investigations focused on one party who is presumed guilty. What's the connection between both of those two things and another thing that we think about in the Human Rights Council that uh, is open-ended and, and focused on essential Israeli guilt, which is item seven? Right. So the Human Rights Council, as I mentioned, meets three times a year. At the Council, we follow, every session follows the same agenda. So there are 10 points on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Item two is the report to the High Commissioner. Item three is civil and political rights. Item four are human rights situations around the world. If you want to bring up a situation in North Korea or China, or whatever, you could do it in a debate held under item four. And then you get to item seven, which is human rights violations in the occupied Arab territories, including Palestine, basically Israel. So item four is on the whole world, 193 countries. Item seven on Israel alone. No other country in the world, not Syria, which is dropping barrel bombs on their own hospitals and schools with the help of the Russians. Not Russia, which has trampled Ukraine and is killing innocent people uh, regularly and doing all kinds of atrocities to the civilian population there. Uh, not North Korea, one of the most horrific places on the planet. Not China, where 1.5 billion people, a fifth of humanity, are denied any form of human rights, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, um, freedom of assembly. They're just thrown into prison if you say anything. You put up a white paper, you're in prison. There's no special agenda item on any of those countries. 
only Israel. Israel is the only country in the world. At every meeting, there's one day only on Israel. So the Human Rights Council has been around for 17 years now. Has there ever been at any point another permanent agenda item dedicated to just one country? No. Uh, no one's ever tried. It's just accepted as that's how it is. The world meets, the world assembles to talk about urgent human rights situations. They have 10 agenda items and there's one agenda item on the Jewish state and that is accepted as normal. I should say that the Western countries, many of them, to their credit, uh, formally object to item seven and do not participate in the regular debate under item seven. They will participate in some of the mechanisms, but in general, they do not speak. So if we look at who spoke two days ago when Francesca Albanese presented her report, most of the Western countries are not present. Some exceptions include Luxembourg and Ireland are, are sort of exceptional, but in general, they don't. So, but otherwise, to answer your question, no other country has ever been made the object of a special agenda item, only Israel. And I know obviously this sounds to us as something that's quite abnormal, but to people who think this is okay, what's the defense of this? What's the case for so much attention only to one country? It's usually not raised by other than people who care about the demonization of Israel, which is a very small group of people. It's usually not raised by anyone. So um, groups like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty will not talk about it. Historically, Amnesty did once say in a position paper that this is could be seen as singling out and opposed the way the mandate was framed. But basically, no one talks about it. That's the short answer. And when there, in the rare moments when there is a debate, the Palestinians will say this situation is, is special. It's the worst situation in the whole world, and therefore, and therefore we need it. Some people will say, well, the UN helped create Israel, therefore it's the UN's problem. So you'll have what I, what I would call frivolous, uh, not very serious, uh, not very strong arguments as to why Israel is the only country in the world that should have its own agenda item. And as this continues, nobody has formulated a serious argument for why this should be a permanent agenda item? No. And the serious people, as I said, most Western countries, even EU countries that are generally very critical of Israel, France is very critical of Israel, so are many other countries in the EU, they, they are on the record as being opposed to the agenda item. So most decent people, even Ban Ki-moon, I should mention, the UN Secretary General, on approximately 20 June 2007, around that time, uh, the day after the agenda item was reinstituted, because it existed in the old commission, so it's a, it's a, it's a thing dating back about 50 years, Ban Ki-moon said, this is wrong, and he, he denounced the special agenda item. And I should say that it, it does appear in other places. The World Health Organization has an annual meeting. There's only one agenda item on a particular country, which is Israel. So the Arab and Islamic states have just historically acted to stick this in wherever they can. Interestingly, both bodies that are based in Geneva. Interestingly, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's not particular. I live in Geneva, <laughs> so I don't want to bash Geneva more than necessary. Um, so it's, it's not a Geneva thing. They, they, they will do it in other places too when they can. All right, well, let's talk about the rapporteur, um, just the position itself, and I think you've already uh, discussed it a bit, but also the, the person who, who fills this position right now. Could you tell us a little bit about her, uh, what's her background, and maybe um, how she compares to some of the previous rapporteurs? So Francesca Albanese has been a longtime anti-Israel activist, and that's why she was chosen. So we should make no mistake, we told the council, we, issued, we presented a report called Mandate to Discriminate, the whole history of the mandate of this special rapporteur. Before she was appointed, we mentioned the fact, we told the Human Rights Council, that she is someone who has regularly equated the Palestinian Nakba, so the experience of the Palestinians in 1948, which uh, she's equated that with the Nazi Holocaust regularly. She has accused Israel of 
before she was appointed, apartheid, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes. Uh, on her application, she was asked, as all candidates are asked, you're about to be an investigator. Do you have anything in your record that might, that might have a conflict of interest? Do you have any views or opinions that could prejudice the manner in which you discharge your mandate? She says no. So even though she accuses Israel of genocide, war crimes, or anything of your opinions that could challenge the objectivity of your mandate, for her, no. For her, that's being completely objective. At the same time, prior to her being appointed, she was interviewed somewhere and she said the opposite. She said, actually, I have deeply held personal views which could compromise my objectivity. about Not about this job, but about something else, maybe about writing a book. So she has deeply held personal views which she said could compromise her objectivity. That's correct. But she said no on her application. Um, she also said she has no personal conflicts of interest. Turns out her husband worked for the Palestinian Authority for about half a year, did, uh, where he did a report on Israel's exploitative policies. Her husband also, in his Facebook posts, I only mention it because she has shared them, uh, she has shared her husband's Facebook posts where he compared Palestinians to Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising against the Nazis. Uh, she shared those things. So she has a recurring theme of comparing Israel's actions to the Nazis and Israel's victims, the Palestinians, as uh, Jewish victims of the Nazis. In 2014, she wrote a Facebook post to raise money for UNRWA. She was encouraging people to donate to UNRWA, and she said that America is subjugated by the Jewish lobby. So this is Francesca Albanese. There's a McGill law professor who wrote an article about how the UN selects rapporteurs and these various commissioners. And he said, he, he indicated that it sometimes seems that... It's not that they, by mistake, happen to choose people who aren't objective. It's that they're specifically looking for people. And I should mention, and sorry to go off on a rant here, but a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, so maybe it was about 2013, maybe about 2015, there was, uh, they were appointing a, a rapporteur, uh, the Palestine rapporteur, and there was a woman who applied named Christine Serna. She had been involved, she lives in Washington, she had worked for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which deals especially with Latin America and things like that. It's part of the Organization of American States. So she was someone who had significant experience in human rights, she had worked for an international organization. There was nothing on her CV dealing with Palestine. The vetting committee, called the Consultative Group, five member states representing all the regions, at that time chose Christine Serna. And the Canadian chair said, this Canadian ambassador, a very serious person at the time, said, uh, we're choosing this person because we want to pick someone who has no you know, bias. It wasn't the word that she used, but no, no particular uh, connection one way or the other to either of the sides. And they picked someone who was very qualified. And the Arab and Islamic states immediately with the Palestinians said, no way. All right. They said, no way. We need someone who has expertise on the region. They meant they want someone who is biased. And so they nixed it. So there was an effort was made by the consultative group. That was the first selection, which normally the president of the council should endorse the first selection. But the Palestinians and their supporters in the Arab Islamic uh, group made a whole ruckus and they pressured the chair to choose someone who was biased. So they, they chose Albanese. We reported to the council who she was. That's why they chose her. But I mean, in a sense, there's nothing new about that, is there, right? Because uh, for as long as this position has existed, it's been filled by... Some exceptions. It, most recently, uh, certainly, Michael Link, before her, extremely biased, used to be involved, involved in Israel Apartheid Week in his Canadian campus in University of Western Ontario. He was, used to work for UNRWA. He was someone who was extremely biased. He, too, was chosen for that. His predecessor, there was an Indonesian ambassador... 
Wibisono before him, famously Richard Falk, John Dugard. So yes, there was someone, Rene Felber in the 90s, who was Swiss, I believe. There were one or two mandate holders in the 90s who actually said, we don't need the mandate anymore. Actually, after the Oslo Accords was enacted and there were a lot of negotiations, they said, we actually don't need it. It's not helping things. We should change the mandate. But that's really uh, anomalies from the past. For the past mm, 15, 20 years, they choose the most ardent anti-Israel activists, and then they complain that we object to it. And if we could just zoom out for a second, the other rapporteur positions that you mentioned, do they also go through a similar selection process? Are yes, they it's usually the same, same vetting process for... for is the result also people who are highly committed activists to one side? Usually or? not. You, you will get people who see themselves as activists in various ways, although you, you rarely get, it can happen from time to time, but you rarely get someone who, that they were enormously active, uh, you know, lobbying against one of the parties. That, that will be rare. That will be very rare. So in the report, she mentions that she wasn't allowed in the country to collect evidence or carry out her investigation. When was she last here? What's, what's her sort of connection to, to the sides here? I, you mentioned a little bit in passing her connection to the Palestinian side. Does she have any contact or, or interface at all with Israelis, I suppose, of any kind, really? And um, how long has she been involved in researching and writing about the conflict? Yeah, so she, she's been involved with the conflict probably for about 10 to 20 years. She has worked for some Arab research institutes on these subjects. She's written a book on the Palestinians. She used to work for UNRWA. So she's been quite involved for a number of years. I don't know how often she's been to Israel. I presume that she's been here a number of times, but I don't really know. And indeed, Israel, historically, going back maybe about 15 plus years, does not engage with this mandate and therefore it will not admit them. Israel has admitted many other UN experts. It has admitted the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, even Navi Pillay, but it, it does not engage with and therefore does not admit this rapporteur. Okay. Let's talk about the report itself. There's a lot in there. If you could just summarize it kind of briefly, what are the main findings of this report? And then what are its recommendations? And besides just the recommendations in the abstract, what can actually happen from the recommendations? Where, where can it go now? Is, it, is there any sort of legal or institutional import to, to its recommendations? So the report is about how Israel arbitrarily arrests and imprisons Palestinians. She uses some fancy terms, uh, a carceral continuum. Uh, I did not know what that meant. Uh, I understand it's connected to the word incar incarcerate, so it's imprisoning people. Um, so she has words like car carcerality, carceral continuum. It's, it's notable, this report is notable because there's a whole bunch of academic jargon words that uh, one doesn't see anywhere in UN reports. She also sometimes just uses French expressions like tout court and other things. So she, she seems struggling to be stylish and maybe to appeal to an academic audience, uh, a very you know narrow niche uh, audience, which is not the way regular people speak. So there, there's this pops up a number of times. She's clearly trying to plug into uh, a certain world, which is actually alien to the world of, of international human rights law. The report is about systematic arbitrary dep deprivation of liberty. It's about how Israel imprisons Palestinians in all kinds of ways and tortures them and, and things like that. In terms of her recommendations, she recommends that the International Criminal Court get involved and launch investigations and prosecutions of Israelis. She wants third parties, namely Western countries uh, or other countries, to prosecute Israelis as well, to the extent that they have 
universal jurisdiction statutes in their, under their criminal law. But there's nothing in this document that launches an ICC investigation or that, that, that opens is, up. That is correct. No, nothing is immediately triggered by, by her report. And in most in general, most of these Human Rights Council reports do not have the power to trigger anything automatically. However, we have seen how international courts eventually do get influenced by these things. I remember the ICJ advisory opinion of 2004 about Israel's defensive barrier, the wall, quoted two rapporteurs. One, I think, was John Dugard, who was extremely anti-Israel, and the other, he was the rapporteur in Palestine, so he, he had uh, Albanese's position at the time, and someone named Jean Ziegler, who was the UN rapporteur on food, and someone who was uh, also the creator of the Qaddafi Human Rights Prize. He won the Qaddafi Human Rights Prize. So he was a notorious apologist for dictators. He was very good friends with Chavez, who actually nominated him for another position at the UN. And the ICJ probably didn't know that. They saw a UN report. You know, this is, this is what they look like, a UN report. It looks very official. It says, report of the rapporteur on blah, 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 and has the UN imprimatur. And people don't know that actually the Cubans appointed Jean Ziegler because he was a friend of Che Guevara and an apologist for communist dictatorships. And they don't know that, that the Palestinians basically put in Francesca Albanese because she has uh, ardently anti-Israel views. And so to answer your question, there's no, nothing immediately is triggered. But uh, over time, these things can influence international tribunals, can influence governments. Foreign ministries don't necessarily know that the UN report was written by a person who is you know, the opposite of objective. And is that equally true of the, the, the Commission of Inquiries reports? Yes, they too can, can potentially uh, influence. And, and I would say... But there's no automatic referral to the Security Council or to the... Or no, to there's the no, ICE. there's no mechanism. They can only recommend. Okay. There, there is no institutional mechanism that they can trigger anything. But I'd say the, especially the Commission of Inquiry, headed by Navi Pillay, they are gathering evidence. So they're going to produce... 100-page reports, 300-page reports with evidence, and they're gonna, they're, they will send them to The Hague. And so the International Criminal Court will receive this massive report uh, with evidence, and they can use it or not, but they're basically doing, they're basically acting as a team of researchers for the prosecution of Israel. Right. I, I was struck that there was, I mean, a, a real sense that um, what it is is an indictment um, where sort of the fantasy outcome, I think the, the barely hidden fantasy outcome for some of the people in, in, in that milieu is to drag the Jews into Nuremberg and put them on trial for being the real criminals. There was nowhere in their recommendation for a diplomatic process, nowhere in there was a, a recommendation for any kind of peace process, negotiated settlement, something that could end the occupation and let these two peoples live in peace next to each other. Um, there was no sketching of what the terms of such a thing could be. There was no call anywhere for something that might lead to a Palestinian state or lead to an end of, of Israel. You're referring to her report to her or the report, CY or both? Yeah. both. both. Well, it's both. I mean, there's, there's nothing, not only is there nothing there in the recommendation, I mean, what was astonishing to me was there's nothing in her report especially that even acknowledges there is a conflict. It's, um, it's one of these weird things. It's like describing a, a soccer game by, by looking at, at, at who's uh, kicking the ball or, 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 or butting it with their head and never actually explaining that there are two teams here whose goal is to get the ball on the other side's goal. There was no sense that there were two nations here fighting over something. Just a description of how awful the status quo is entirely grounded in, in this cosmic belief of one side's insatiable evil. 
I thought that was really interesting, particularly coming from a body like the United Nations, which exists on the principle to of... To bring countries together. Yeah, exactly. People together. Look, uh, you, 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 you wrote about this, you know, also about the COI. It, it's, it's the same how uh, there's been a successful effort over the past several decades to take something that was once called the Arab-Israel conflict. And when I grew up, that's what it was called, the Arab-Israel conflict, and it was understood that uh, Arab nations had you know, surrounded Israel in 1967, uh, had attacked Israel in 1948 against to try to defeat the UN resolution calling for two states. Could have had two states, in 1948, when the British left, uh, Israel was, was ready for it, accepted it, and the Arab states went to war against Israel. So that was once the Arab-Israel conflict, then by, I guess, the by 70s, 80s, it became 90s, mostly, suddenly became the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so completely changed the, the lens from looking at, you know, because you, you had uh, countries like Algeria and Libya actively involved, certainly Libya, Gaddafi, actively involved, and other Arab countries supporting them. You had an Arab-Israel conflict, and then the lens just ignored all of those, just went, and Israel, of course, looks bigger compared to the Palestinians, so it became the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then it just said it's no longer even a conflict. Today it's apartheid and all the rest, not, not even a conflict. It's not right. even a conflict. Yeah, yeah, what I wrote was that it evolved from the Arab-Israeli conflict to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which obviously uh, re-engineers the dimensions of it um, and the presumptive guilt. And then it evolved from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into just a discussion of the occupation, which makes it less of a conflict and more about Israeli sin. And then, of course, it evolves from the occupation to uh, the word apartheid, because when you discuss the occupation, it's a discussion only of Israeli sin, but it's a sin that can be rectified. When you move to talking about apartheid, it's no longer something bad that Israel does, which presumably could be ended or fixed, but something evil that Israel is, whose only solution is the elimination of Israel. I think each of those three transitions tells us something about the, the zeitgeist of, of, uh, of the intellectual community this is coming from. No, and, and I want to pick up on that. And it really does revive Zionism as racism, which, which wasn't about an Israeli action or policy. It was the very idea of Israel itself. The very idea of, of, of a Jewish state is evil, and today it's the form that Israel is apartheid. And I, th I think it's very notable what you mentioned. It's, it's a fundamental thing, which is, you know, when I was growing up and, and we had the Camp David Accords and there was peace, I thought that people who criticized Israel and who were very outspoken on the conflict just wanted to see peace. And you don't see it with these people. You don't see it with, you know, to mention Ken Roth, who was the head of Human Rights Watch for many years. You don't see him saying, I really want to bring peace. My dream is for peace. You see an aggression, a hostility, very mobilized, very intense of a hatred of Israel. And that's what they want to talk about. And when you had this incredible explosion of peace accords in the past few years, the Abraham Accords, which are unbelievable to see in, in Geneva when I did see the deputy ambassador of the United Arab Emirates wearing her hijab, taking the floor, giving a speech on behalf of United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, the US and Israel, about some kind of technical cooperation. That was amazing as my uh, grandparents might have said, Mashiach Zeit, it's, it's the time of the Messiah. We dream of it, it makes us cry to see Arabs and Israels, Muslims and Jews coming together at the United Nations and talking about peace and tens of thousands of Israelis going to the Emirates and being received there. Emirati diplomats coming there. I had one at my house for Shabbat dinner. It's a beautiful thing. And, and those of us who want peace, who want to see the baby alive, this thrills us. But, but yeah, the Albanese report actually sort of derides uh, the peace process in the places where it comes up obliquely as some kind of re-engineering of the occupation. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no sense of... Um, um, there's no sense that there might be any urgency, not just for the Israelis. That's obvious that that's not a consideration. But there's no sense for the, for the Palestinians there could be any good from it. You know, 
if this status quo is so awful, and I accept that it is, I want to maybe dedicate a few minutes uh, of our discussion to that in a second, then wouldn't it be the imperative of anybody who cares about the Palestinian cause to say, well, what can you do to, to change it or end it? Where the obvious thing seems to be to enter into a sincere negotiation that can, that can yield it. I mean, an occupation, to the extent there is one, can, can be ended in one of two ways, either by defeating it militarily, which I don't think is a realistic option for, for the Palestinians in this case, or by negotiating a, a political a settlement. Two sides enter a room with their own maps and don't leave until they have a line that they agree on. Right. There's no sense. The Albanese report and the COI make it sound like anything that even resembles that is, is a kind of betrayal rather than the only realistic pathway out. And indeed, they, they are doing everything they can to eliminate any Palestinian incentive to negotiate. They're saying, don't bother negotiating. We in the international community, we're going to hand it to you by forcing Israel. And, and it, it's, it's, it's not going to work that way. So you've been in the field of, of human rights for decades at this point. Were there any points in the report that you found compelling? I mean, obviously, we're very critical of the report, um, yeah, but is yeah, there anything look, that, that stuck out to you? And, and also, by the way, it stuck out to you as, as particularly bad as well. But I mean, in, in general, the, of the things she raised, something that, that left an impression on you. That Yeah, look, she, she has 10,700 words about uh, all kinds of terrible things happening to the Palestinians. And I've spent a lot of time in the territories, so I know the situation. And I've been in Palestinian villages and refugee camps. And there is a bad situation there. And so one has to recognize that. Uh, those of us who are critical of people like Albanese, I'm not here to say that, that the Palestinians don't live in difficult situations. I'm not saying that Israel's military presence in various Palestinian villages and refugee camps and so forth uh, are fun and games for them. They're not, and there are things that the soldiers should be held to account. Certainly we're seeing settler rampages in places like Huwara. They need to be held to account. And and the Israeli soldiers need to be held to account. I, I know that there are situations where Israeli soldiers will do bad things to Palestinians. So they need to be held to account. And there's a whole bunch of things. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very long report about bad things being done to Palestinians. The problem with, with her is because she's so one-sided, there's, I don't think there's any mention of, of Palestinian terrorism where this begins. And be, because I have some history with this, I remember touring around in the territories in the 1980s, and you could basically go anywhere. And Palestinians could go from, I don't know, Nablus to Tel Aviv. Maybe there was one checkpoint. But it was very easy, and you could find Palestinians easily. And, you know, they were working in Israel. Maybe it wasn't great for them. But the system of checkpoints that we have was not something that Israel dreamed up, and it was not the Israeli right. On the contrary, the Israeli right hated having the security barrier. They hated having the checkpoints because they see it as one, one territory. So the reason that we have all these checkpoints is because there was this murderous terrorism where a thousand Israelis were murdered in, around the year 2000 during the Second Intifada. Thousands of others were injured. Buses being blown up, discos being blown up, pizzerias being blown up. Just a few days ago in Tel Aviv, there was a terrorist attack, car rammings. They're never ending. They're knife stabbings. And Hamas, Islamic Jihad, are doing this. Palestinian Authority is inciting them. And the reason that Israel went into Janine recently is because, you know, it became a terrorist factory. And none of this is mentioned in the report. So I would say that the sad part of her report is because she's so one-sided, legitimate things that Israel should look at, that international community should hold Israel to account. It's very hard to know from reading her what you should take seriously. So that, that was hard for me. I'm reading things, and I know that some things are going to be true, but a lot of things are distorted and exaggerated. Her footnotes are basically all to anti-Israel sources, um, so it's so one-sided that it's hard to know what, what you should really care about.
So you mentioned this earlier. I, I was struck by the language of the report. Um, usually reports of this kind, at least to my knowledge, and I'm considerably less familiar uh, than, than you are, are written either in a very legal language, sometimes a laughably legal language when it's really in, inappropriate to describe a conflict situation. And if they're not written in the language of law, they're at least written in a language that's familiar to anybody discussing politics, a language of conflict, a language of war. And this one is really full of, of postmodern academic jargon, carceral continuum, and, and buzzwords with no real legal content. That, that just fire up the dopamine register on a certain kind of, of young Western activist like settler colonialism. I, I assume you, you've read a lot more UN reports than I have. Is this part of a, a trend? Is this something that's only done when the topic is Israel? Do we see other rapporteurs and other human rights uh, investigations veer into this kind of um, jargony activist language and away from sort of standard international humanitarian law or basic concepts of, of, of conflict resolution? Yeah, well, and if it is special or if it is a trend whichever way it is. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so first I agree with you. I, I was struck by numerous terms that you don't find usually in these kinds of reports. The word panopticon, she uses the French expression tout court. And, and it's, it, it doesn't make any sense, frankly, to be in a UN report. That's not how I've read. Unfortunately, for all my sins, I've had to read many UN reports. They're usually very boring and legalistic. And usually there, there are editors and they edit them out. And clearly this, this was a very, this was a sloppy rush job because uh, in, in various versions of the report, even the one that was published, there's all kinds of things that say like just F footnote that she hasn't completed the footnotes. I think normally these would be edited out. So I think it may be that she put in her personal language and maybe it was rushed and the normal editors didn't suggest to her that she clean it up. I don't know if there's a trend. I think each rapporteur can kind of do their own thing. Usually the editors convince them to make the language somewhat uniform. So I, I don't know if there's a trend on that. But it does show obviously that she is trying to reach a certain uh, niche of the postmodern academics. Okay, the last thing I wanted to talk about was just sort of zooming out and seeing this as part of an entire intellectual ecosystem. One that frequently fashions itself as critics of Israel, but in reality really has Israel as part of a comprehensive worldview as a sort of center of global evil. Um, Israel and powerful Jews and its supporters as holding the world back from a message of light and peace and brotherhood. For us, who, for those of us who are outside of that, that milieu, it all appears very obsessive and, and weird. I don't get that it feels that way for people on the inside. One expression of it uh, that you already mentioned earlier, um, I think is, is worth pursuing maybe for another minute or two, is the footnotes. Almost all the footnotes are from within that internal refractions of that discussion. I suspect, by the way, that if I went to, and again, here's something that you would know better than I, that if I went to the reports that are footnoted, they too are all footnoted from each other from the same right. couple places. I wonder what we can say about that intellectual ecosystem, who it's really geared for, if that's a Middle Eastern phenomenon or if this is really something that's happening um, in, in Western capitals and, and where we can kind of fit that in our larger intellectual environment uh, in the West. So I don't know if you had some yeah, thoughts on I, that. I, I, I think you're touching on important things. Some of it might be beyond my pay grade. Certainly about the UN reports. As a special rapporteur, she's meant to be kind of a judge, an, an objective investigator, examining things, researching things, presenting her findings. She's not meant to be an activist. And clearly she, she doesn't get that or 
the people who appointed her wanted her to be an activist, but but the various code of code of conduct that 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 governs the work of the special rapporteurs are that they're supposed to be objective and impartial, and so on and so forth. And you you do see it from time to time. There was a special rapporteur in freedom of religion. His name was Ahmed Shahid, and he wrote a report on anti-Semitism. And he said, well, you know, there are some people who say we should adopt the IRA definition. And that uh, if you demonize Israel, that could be considered anti-Semitism in certain cases. But there are others who say absolutely not. And so you have you know, numerous footnotes on one side, numerous footnotes of the counter-argument. This is not what you see here. This is not the gist. I mean, even the Goldstone Report had some references to the other side, some references, very minor, very minor, but some. And you don't see that at all with her. I think that she might only cite a, an Israeli source or a pro-Israel source if it's to prove something negative about them. And the truth is, the Goldstone Report was mostly like that as well, but there were some exceptions. And, you know, I, I think that says, that says a lot about what this report is about. And lastly, I want to take us back about 22 years to Durban in 2001. Um, and at Durban, we saw various NGOs and activists stop this language of apartheid. It wasn't new then either. I mean, it had been sort of in the air since the 1970s at least but really push that language of apartheid to describe Israel. And it took about two decades for that to enter the mainstream of the human rights community and become something that you can now see quoted in mainstream newspapers all the time and part of all these glossy reports from uh, various human rights organizations in, around, in and around the year 2021. But it's, it's very obvious kind of how what starts there and the investment that's made into pushing that idea further into mainstream. So if we can sort of apply that method, what do we see, if we look at the fringes of anti-Israel activism today, can we make a prediction about where they want to take the various UN bodies and major human rights organizations and uh, eventually, hopefully, even professional echelons of, of some uh, foreign ministries in the next 20 years? Yeah, I, I, I think we can figure out where they're going to go. And, and it's worth taking a look, indeed, as you sketched out where we've been. I mean, there's one word that seems pretty obvious to me that they're working on that's after yeah. apartheid, right? I mean, yeah, there's yeah, no we'll secret get, here. It's not yeah, a... Yeah, they're obviously going to genocide. Yeah. She says in, in her report, she, she hints at it. I mean, I, I would say her report is extremely emotional. And she gets very worked up. You can see her when she speaks. She gets very worked up. And there are no limits. She's not someone who's trying to be measured. And, and she has no limits. So what can you accuse Israel of? Complete racism, systematic. So she has settler colonial apartheid. And then she says uh, at the end of her report, it's the very end, that she, she says the, we, need to, we need investigations. The ICC, the criminal court, should examine all these th crimes, including F is apartheid. She has A to F. F is apartheid. And then... The, the likelihood that this is being done cumulatively and that such a plan would threaten the right of an entire people to exist as a national group. So there are a couple of places where she hints that we're talking about the very existence of the Palestinian people and that Israel is trying to destroy an entire people and that clearly this, this, that they're going to go to genocide because, you know, what, what else can you throw against Israel? Obviously, she's going in that direction. But I, I wanted to come back to the apartheid thing. And you kind of sketched it out, but I, I share how I see it. Indeed, in Durban, there was, the, there was what happened at the main conference, which was very bad. Israel was singled out under the rubric of racism, the only country singled out. Then there was the NGO declaration, which was evil, and it accused Israel, among other things, of apartheid. There was a strong reaction to what happened in Durban. The late Tom Lantos, known as Mr. Human Rights at Congress, a Holocaust survivor, condemned the evils of the Durban conference. 
And in America, there was, a, there was a recognition that something terrible had happened at Durban. People on the streets were marching, thousands saying Hitler was right and Zionism is racism. And the Ford Foundation, it turns out the Ford Foundation, uh, a major foundation in New York, had funded many groups to go to Durban and to do, to do a number of these terrible things. And the Ford Foundation recognized that having supported groups that helped champion this declaration that Israel's apartheid was a terrible thing, and that it connected to anti-Semitism. So back in 2001 and 2005, when you said the slur that the Jewish state is systematically racist, almost inherently racist by being a Jewish state, um, and accusing Israel of apartheid, which was the, a, a, another word for evil in our time, uh, that that was an anti-Semitic thing to do. And uh, fast forward 20 years later, that's no longer the case. The term has now been completely legitimized. You, you had in the year 2020, and we talked about this before, how suddenly, obviously a coordinated but several groups, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, said Israel's apartheid. And Lazar Berman of, of, of Times of Israel interviewed the heads of Amnesty who were visiting Jerusalem to present the report. And he said, can you tell me, why did you, of all the countries in the world, you didn't go to China where they've herded a million Uyghur Muslims into camps that's not apartheid in you know, many other cases. Why did you begin with Israel? And they said, well, there, there was a conversation about it. So, you know, it's this entire circular thing. They're, they're all talking about it. And there was a conversation, therefore we picked Israel. And I have to say about Amnesty, in 2015, at one of their annual assemblies in London or in the UK, someone proposed that they investigate anti-Semitism and they voted, no, we're not going to investigate anti-Semitism. And they were asked, when they were asked why that was the case, uh, on Twitter, Amnesty wrote, well, we can't campaign on everything. So why don't you do anything on anti-Semitism, even though you did a 126-page report on Islamophobia? Why don't you do something on anti-Semitism? Well, you can't campaign on everything. Why did you begin when you did apartheid? Why is the only country in the world that's apartheid Israel? Well, you got to begin somewhere. You know, it's where we're having the conversation. So that's Amnesty International. And connecting it to Albanese, she was interviewed a year and a half ago. And she said, you know, it's wonderful. She said this in Italian, so I'm translating. She said, you know, it's wonderful. These groups, these international groups, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, have now accused Israel of apartheid. And she looked up to the sky and she said, hanno liberato la parola. Hanno liberato la parola. They liberated the word. They liberated the word. And you see how thrilled she is. And indeed, this report 12 times Israel is called apartheid. The word Hamas appears nowhere. It's somewhere in a footnote as a title of someone else's thing. The word Hamas appears nowhere in her report. There is no Hamas terrorism. Uh, there are no thousands of rockets. There are no Hamas charters calling for the murder of Jews. And, and instead, you have the word apartheid. So, and obviously, you know, where are you going to go next? How else can you accuse Israel of evil? It's genocide. And, and, and that's where we're going. And I'll just say it's clear that these experts aren't looking at uh, trying to bring people to the peace table or trying to remedy a situation. They're looking to focus on the sins of Israel, as Matty Friedman has said, the sins of the Jews seems to be an obsession. And that's why when I look at the Commission of Inquiry, which has no end date, it really looks a lot to me like something that was called the Inquisition, which existed for hundreds of years. And they knew you were guilty. You got burned and tortured until you said you were guilty. They were looking to find the sins of the Jews and to burn people at the stake. And that's, that's how I see um, the Commission of Inquiry. It's the new Inquisition. And, and indeed, Francesca Albanese is part of that same effort. An Inquisition, what a show. All right, we'll end our discussion there. Thank you so much for this excellent conversation. Thank you. For an overview of all country-specific resolutions and to discover your country's voting record on Israel, visit unwatch.org database.
Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time.